Hi there, esteemed audience, and Happy New Year! Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja, the first episode for 2020. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the... You're thinking that I'm not going to tell you what the third book is because I never do. Nope, it's a brand new year, esteemed audience. I'll tell you, it's Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy uh, is the title of the third book. If you check out the website, middlegradeninja.com, you can see the spiffy new cover that's been revealed uh, and learn more about the third of uh, Banneker Bones and Ellicott Skullworth's adventures uh, fighting uh, robots. Uh, Benedict Bones is an 11-year-old biracial boy detective. He's basically Batman at age 11, and he is always fighting a new monster to save Latimer City. It's a good time if you're interested. There's never been a better time to get started on the series with the third book coming soon and very soon. Uh, you can get the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as a paperback and audiobook, and the ebook is free free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Um, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I have written some novels for older readers, such as the young adult novel All Together Now, a zombie story, uh, which is essentially Walking Dead fan fiction. If you like slow zombies, if you always wanted to see what would happen if they attacked an Indiana town, I guarantee you it would involve a church and a Walmart. And that's the story I've got for you. All Together Now, a zombie story. Uh, if you like that, check out the companion piece, All Right Now, a short zombie story. If you want to blow past the young adult and get straight to the uh, hard adult horror, I've also got a five-volume anthology, The Book of David. Uh, the Book of David is about an atheist that purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is bonkers. Uh, if you're interested in just an absolutely bonkers read or you just want to uh, wade your toe in. Uh, you could check out the Book of David Chapter 1 uh, as an ebook. You can download that one for free. You can also get the paperback. Or you can get all five chapters as a single compilation in the Book of David. Uh, and check those out. So that's the Book of David by Robert Kent. Uh, as always, uh, keep up with what's going on with the show on the website, middlegradeninja.com. Check out a listing of all the guests we've got planned for you here in 2020. It's going to be another great year of the podcast. I'm excited. I hope you are as well. Uh, and today, I couldn't be more excited. We've got the incredible good fortune uh, to talk to, I think, our first ever author from Canada, uh, Miss Erin Bowe. Erin uh, Bowe, how are you this morning? I'm doing good, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, making the time to appear. Uh, and you are in your, uh, for those watching on YouTube rather than listening, you are in your uh, writer's shed this morning. Is that right? I am, yeah. I call it the deep shed because, you know, sometimes I do deep work and sometimes I'm just in deep shed. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's a little uh, nine by seven shed in my backyard because I got a couple of kids and a couple of elderly parents and a big old fluffy dog in there. So it's kind of crazy in my house to write and the shed is nice and quiet. And I had read, we're going we're gonna to talk about all kinds of fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, we should tease the chat. I've got more questions for you about your writing. <laughs> uh, but okay. we should start by uh, for a esteemed audience who hasn't been stalking you online, reading your book, getting to know you uh, as, as much as one can without uh, talking to you first. Please give them kind of a, an overview of your background and how and how you got started writing. 
I'm one of those people that came late to writing. I was always a kid who had her nose in a book. I was always the go outside and play. I can see your flashlight under the covers, kid. Um, but I never it never occurred to me that like books were something that humans created. I guess I thought they just kind of came into the world somehow, like mayflies. Uh, so it never occurred to me that I could be a person who wrote books. Uh, so instead, I was a person who really liked science because I also imprinted on Carl Sagan like a duck. I give my age away, but yeah, the, the original cosmos, I was just kind of like, that is so cool. So I studied physics. Um, I worked for a while, just a year at uh, CERN, the particle collider outside of Geneva. I went to graduate school and then I dropped out. So calling me a physicist is like calling a kid that dropped out of med school a doctor. It's my background and there's no other good shorthand, but you know, compared to the people who actually do research, I don't have a lot of training. Um, then I spent my 20s doing stupid things like answering telephones and writing manuals for flipping hamburgers before I finally got serious about writing. Um, I wrote my first book was a book of poetry, published it about, I was about 30, uh, and it won a big award. And that kind of put me on the path. So now I have two books of poetry, a memoir, which absolutely nobody read, um, and five novels, two books of fantasy uh, for young readers, for young adults. Uh, there's a Plain Kate is a Russian flavored fairy tale about a girl who sells her shadow and gets a talking cat, which is exactly what you need to escape the rich witch burning mobs in Russia. Yeah, he gets her into more trouble than anything else, but, um, you know, I, I firmly believe that all cats can talk, they just don't find us worthy, so this is this is that book. Um, <laughs> did, did, they, did you discover that at CERN? No, I should, didn't. Should, should we be concerned? <laughs> <laughs> there were some very sad radioactive cats at CERN, because the building I worked with, it's not underground like the ones are now, it was in the open air. Um, like a big airplane hangar of a kind of place, and the animals would wander in and out. Um, so they had you know, the radioactive I, paws kind of cross, yeah, and like, we can't talk to you, but we're not going to, because <laughs> you yeah. made us radioactive. I remember making friends with a particular cat in there, and my supervisor going, oh, look, this one's still roughly symmetrical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been trying to make it up to cats ever since. Yeah. Sorrow's Not's my second book. It's, a, it's another fantasy. It's about a girl who inherits from her mother the power to repel the restless dead, which otherwise spread this kind of contagious, terrible madness. Uh, and she's very proud of her power. She's very secure in her place in her society and her traditions until mom dies. So it's a family book and a book about madness and... It's it's really creepy. This is the book that I wrote to the actual literal cabin in the woods to write. And that was a bad idea. That really super spooked me. Um, but, uh, and then there's... We don't put a pin in that. We'll tease that as well. I want to know more about <laughs> that cabin experience. <laughs> okay. Uh, Scorpion Rules and the Swan Riders are a pair of young adult science fiction, political, post-apocalyptic, transhuman thrillers. The first one's set entirely on a goat farm in Saskatchewan, as they tend to be. And the second one has, uh, you know, mad artificial intelligences riding horses. So they're, they're bonkers, um, but they're a lot of fun. Uh, they're 
big, serious, chewy, deep books, but they're also bonkers, and they have a lot of goats and humor in them. At this point, goats are kind of my brand. And then the newest one is the middle grade adventure Stand on the Sky, which um, young readers never get it, but old librarians will get it perfectly. Did you read Where the Red Fern Grows? Of course. Of course, right? The book about the boy, and he has the two dogs, and he raises them in this beautiful friendship, and then the cougar attacks the dogs, and they die. So uh, the red fern grows up out of their grave. Spoiler. Um, There's one really good reason to write books. It's out of spite. I wrote The Red Fern Grows with a happy ending. So Sand on the Sky is where the red fern grows, but in Mongolia with a girl and an eagle and a happy ending. So why, um, you know, we, we talk about almost anything. Let's spend a little time on, uh, on Stand on the Sky, the brand new book that is available right now, esteemed audience. It's in bookstores, it's online. My God, where can't you get a copy? <laughs> um, with uh, what, what was it? Uh, so I wanted to ask you about, because I'd read your quote about wanting to give Where the Red Fern Grows a happy ending. Uh, and so did you actually draw inspiration from that? Are there parallels between the two stories? Um, I was really. looking I for them. I didn't see them. I didn't go back and read it. I, I still haven't forgiven Wilson Rawls, actually. So I didn't <laughs> go back and read it. It was just, I cut my teeth as a young reader of a certain age on books like Where the Red Fern Grows and on Sounder. Anybody read Sounder? And Shiloh and um, The Fledgling, which is about a goose, but also the goose dies. Uh, All of these, all of these books, uh, Old Yeller. I read Old Yeller when I was a certain age. All of these books about a kid and an animal where the relationship with the animal like transforms their place in their family and their own, their identity um, as a metaphor for growing up usually in these middle grade books. And then as a metaphor for finishing growing up, the animal dies almost always. And since I was always really more attached to the animals than to the human characters, I, I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I wanted one where, it's the same metaphor, but it doesn't have the same ending. So the parallels are not exact. It's just kind of flavored. Gotcha. So oh, that's, that's fun. Because when I read your quote, I thought, oh, well, how sweet. She must have really been inspired by this book she loved. And now I'm hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the book. I love the book. But absolutely, pure spite. I'm about to go talk to high school students this afternoon. And I'm going to tell them, you know, one of the best reasons to write a book is pure spite. You find the book that you hate, and you write the book that fixes it. Well, I, I don't know if you can hate it, but, you know, you find the book that's broken or that breaks you in some way, and you write the book that fixes it. Or you find the book that they wouldn't give to you that didn't exist, and you write the book that you need, you know? So I think there are a lot of people doing that these days, which is fabulous to see. When you write, but it's not do, you have, uh, do you have an ideal writer or an ideal reader in mind, or are you just writing for a, a younger version of you, or is it a little bit of both? Usually it's a younger version of me. Uh, usually I write the books. Well, I always write a book that I would want to read. Uh, I write the stuff that I like to read. I read a lot of middle grade. I read a lot of young adult. I read the occasional um, just straight-up adult book. Um, 
I've lost track of science fiction, so I, I have trouble threading my way through the adult science fiction community these days. I still read, like, I'm Canadian, so read can-lit kind of stuff. But every once in a while you read this can-lit thing, and it's like, you know, we moved north to find ourselves, and then we all died in the snow. And <laughs> it's... They don't tell stories. They're just extended set pieces and meditations and they're beautiful but I like stories so I read young people's stuff because young people's stuff always has a story in it most of the time <laughs> I can think of some glaring examples but I, I do my absolute best to never author shame on the show uh, unless the target's so big that they won't care uh, mm -hmm. So once in a while, I'll, I'll uh, score a shot on J.K. Rowling or, or Stephen King. <laughs> I don't think they're listening. Uh, but but other authors, I, uh, I, even if I uh, violently, even if I have spite toward their book, even if it has fueled me to write another story, I feel like, well, the worst thing that that author did, unless they, unless they really did something bad, the worst thing they did was to try to entertain me and to increase okay. our shared literary conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You, I wish you'd done it better, but I can't knock the goal. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reasonable point. But I will point out that Wilson Rawls, who wrote Where the Red Fern Grows, is dead now. So, <laughs> <laughs> But his grandchildren are listening and they're crying their eyes out. <laughs> you know what? I, I would still give that book to young people. Um, there are some books from my childhood that haven't aged gracefully. Um that, you know, turn out to be wildly racist in retrospect or something. But I wouldn't give to a very young reader without, you know, an opportunity to make it a conversation. But that's not one of them. It's really a lovely book. It's just a sad book. It's a book that'll make you cry and cry and cry. But I've written a couple of those myself, so. Well, it's uh, something I go back and forth on, and I haven't I haven't made my peace with it either way. Uh, is some of these great authors that I looked up to. Um, Roald Dahl is one of the examples I usually use because he's one of my absolute favorites, uh, and I love The Witches. It is my favorite middle grade book, and it is undeniably sexist. Uh, as yeah. I go back and I read it as an adult, you can't miss it. It's right there. And as I think about all the time, as I must have read that book uh, 20, 25 times, uh, growing up, because just every summer I'd put it back in rotation at least once, because it was the only middle grade book I knew of that was really scary. There were other middle grade books my mom would let me read, like you know there was Benicula, and I love Benicula, but Benicula <laughs> is not scary. The witches is scary, mm -hmm. um, and um, but yeah, no, it's it's undeniably sexist. I think well. One, is that maybe some responsible for some issues with women I had early on? <laughs> and two, uh, at least partly, uh, probably also growing up in the 80s didn't, didn't help. Uh, and then two, but can I pass that on to my son? How much weight should we give that? Because if you take the sexism out, and it's real hard to separate in a story about killer women attacking a, a small boy. Um, but if you take that sexism out, is that still a brilliant work that should be revered, that we should learn from? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you handle that? Is it just having a conversation with a young reader that, hey, this is in here. Let's talk about it enough. Or should we say, nope, let's start. We'll start with new books, because I worry that as authors, just by definition, progress is going to move beyond us, I hope. Uh, and so at one point, there will be things in our books that are not as progressive uh, as wherever we hopefully end up. Mm hmm. Absolutely. I mean, hopefully the entire 20th century will age badly. 
right? I mean, hopefully they're going to move beyond some of the stuff that's like deeply programmed into us. Um, And I don't know. I don't know how to deal with... um, I mean, there are some books that are given to really young readers with no context that I think probably shouldn't be. Like, I read Little House on the Prairie maybe 50 times when I was little. Because I'm from there. I'm from Nebraska, South Dakota. Um, You know, I went out personally to see the farmstead where Pa planted the cottonwood trees. I mean, this was a holy pilgrimage for me. (laughs) But I probably wouldn't give those books. I didn't give those books to my girls when they were the same age that I was when I when I loved them. I might give them to them now. They're 11 and 14 now. So they're a little bit almost too big to read them. Um, but if they read them now, I, you know, read them alongside like the Birch Bark House. And let's talk about, you know, let's talk about American Westward Expansion and who was there before the actual Westward Expansion started. And there's a lot to unpack in those books that's just, it's buried so deep but I think it just gets right in at little readers. I don't know. Um, on the other hand, authors are human, right? And none of us are perfect. And, you know, none of our books are going to be perfect. And I think extending a certain amount of forgiveness to each other is probably important. Um, I don't know that everybody is obligated to forgive everything. And especially with authors who, you know, don't, aren't self-reflective and don't ask for forgiveness. Um, But, you know, I've written some, I've written, I was just talking the other day in Plain Kate, my very first novel, there's a character uh, who's albino and a witch. And I wouldn't do that again. I didn't realize, I was writing out of Russian fairy tales in which that is a real trope. you know, I'd read this 500-page book of Russian fairy tales, and I just put it back on the page. I didn't realize that um, that's still a stereotype that still hurts people with albinism. I mean, there are parts of the world where that will still get you killed. Uh, being because albino. you might be a witch because, because you you're a born a albino. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wouldn't do it again. Um, but I think it's still a good book. And, you know, I hope... That, you know, if there's an albino reader, maybe this is not the book for them. Maybe this is something they don't need to forgive. Um, But I hope that some of my other readers will extend some forgiveness to me. I did write an albino character into the Scorpion Rules just for the chance to do it better. And he is, you know, just kind of a rock star with cool prosthetic eyes and uh, a Lithuanian accent that's sort of adorable. He's the engineer who blows things up of the group. So, so is that your uh, writerly penance? My little writerly, <laughs> my little writerly chance to do it better. To write a really awesome character with albinism is, instead of actually the um, the witch character is awesome too, but still, I wouldn't do it again. I don't know. Makes sense. I try to keep a nice, healthy dose of forgiveness, especially for authors of the past. Because one, I want that applied to me. 
just absolutely. Um, but too, it's it's also I you know I, I I think we're both old enough now to remember a time when the internet wasn't a thing. Uh, when I want to shock uh, young people at, at school visits or when I meet them, I tell them I when I grew up there was no internet. They're like, oh my god, were, were there dinosaurs? <laughs> uh, and it's hard to remember a time when everybody didn't have uh, such widely available access to information. Mm -hmm. uh, which is just crucial to trying to go back and understanding that younger mindset. Um, like, for example, when I'm, uh, another uh, favorite author of mine is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And mm -hmm. I like to joke that because I'm a flying saucer enthusiast, um, mm -hmm. that should that ever be proven to absolutely have been a hoax, completely made up, I don't think that's likely. But if it were to be so, I would want people to look at me the same way and separate that out a little bit the way I look back at poor uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his pictures of fairies that mm -hmm. like do 10 seconds on Google, we can prove that that's not a thing. But there was no Google. <laughs> he just had the, the photograph, and all the photographs he'd ever look at were not that great. And you could see a, a, a brilliant mind kind of going down that rabbit hole, and uh, mm -hmm. I think that's forgivable. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. I, I think, you know, times change and cultures change, but we do stay human. Uh, so I think we can connect to um, these people who, you know, have written something that just today it just wouldn't fly. Like if you wrote that today, you would just be, I'm not thinking of Doyle specifically because I actually, I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. Um, but there's plenty of stuff uh, from the 19th century where if it was written today, it would just have to be written by a clueless human being. Um, but it wasn't. You know, it was written by, you know, someone with, deep compassion and caring and talent and insight into their society. And I don't know, I don't think we have to throw all those things out necessarily. You know, I think maybe just some awareness of how things change and how our culture informs what we do is probably a smart thing to have. It's tricky. Though. It's tricky though. And you know, I, I talk as a white woman, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really not generically the person who's affected by this, I'm, you know, I'm, it's easy for me to forgive because in most cases, I'm not the one that's getting hurt. So, you know, brown people may well have different perspectives and I think probably, you know, it's worth listening to those before you listen to me. But since I'm here, there you go, that's mine. No, I'm a heterosexual white male that grew up in a small Indiana town of mostly heterosexual white people, or at least uh, uh, officially heterosexual. That's how I should phrase that. Um, and uh, then I, uh, I fell in love with uh, with an African American woman in college, and, and we married, and uh, we have a beautiful child together. Uh, and it was um, uh, just it wasn't quite like taking the red pill in the Matrix. Uh, but it was unbelievably eye-opening, looking at all these things I'd never had to look at in a particular way before. And it would almost get, get, I, I uh, would joke that it was like discovering that you've been living in a conspiracy theory, but the conspiracy is so unbelievably obvious that that's why it was impossible to see, because it's just so in your face, the, the institutional racism that, that, that surrounds us and creates, uh, makes all things possible. I got me thinking like, oh, maybe my all white Indiana town didn't happen by accident. Oh, that changes things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, racism is a thing. I think it's easy for white people to miss racism because it's a structure that we're standing on top of, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to see the ground. So 
That's another one of those things that I think is um, is a very uh, human thing. I remember when Katrina happened. Um, I was uh, with my father-in-law, and we were watching. Uh, well, he was, he was my girlfriend's dad at the time. He's my father-in-law now. Uh, we were watching the the victims and uh, from the Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, uh, and then we saw some people commenting on it. And you know, they were white. Uh, wealthier people, and they said, well, if I were in that situation, we'd have just piled the family into our SUV, and we got four-wheel drive, we'd have just driven right out of there. Uh, just a complete lack of empathy and understanding. Uh, which is why sometimes when I get all fired up about uh, billionaires, uh, and, and, and I, it's a passion of mine, is how much I hate billionaires, because I, I okay. don't think they're admirable people. And I think if there's one thing that I can impart to people, it's stop thinking billionaires are good. If they think they're good. They're delusional. You can't listen to them. <laughs> Objectively, they're not. Um, but then I think about how I don't spend uh, my moments. I don't give every penny I have uh, to charity. Uh, and I have some some pennies I could be given. Um, and I try and judge. I don't know what I'm trying to get at other than I just try and cut humans some slack just because it's difficult to be a human and you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably that's a good takeaway. That's a really good takeaway. So. Well, that got extra philosophical, extra it early. Did. I had. <laughs> really early. We're talking about the. Uh, um, you know, racial biases of the canon. Let's talk about something different. Meaning of <laughs> life. That's the next that, Rob. There's no <laughs> way for us to fix that in the next hour. The canon has racial biases. Stipulated. Okay. Well, let's start. Uh, I teased the shed and the cabin. We're getting to both those things. Don't worry, esteemed audience. Okay. I haven't forgotten. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the uh, the Canada lit, the 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 trope of coming and making a journey uh, north and discovering yourself. Couldn't you write that? I mean, you grew up in Omaha, right? And now you're you're in Canada. I, I think you moved early on. I, I'd written down your age, but early 20s, maybe? Yeah, somewhere in there. I um, Basically right after grad school. So I've lived here every time I wasn't in university, so most of my adult life. So... Um, yeah, I guess so. I guess I could I could write the move north thing. But, you know, moving from Omaha, Nebraska to Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario is not a huge culture shock. You shouldn't let the native born Canadians know that I said this because Canada's entire national identity. Well, English Canada's entire national identity is founded on being not American. We are very not American, um, which is tricky if you're also American. So, uh, but you don't refer to yourselves as America's hat. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. I have heard it said that we're North America's designated driver. <laughs> That's a pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> have yeah. you not noticed many uh, big cultural changes one way or the other? Then not huge ones. The medical system is very different, and thank goodness but i've been very sick in both countries and americans would be on the streets if they knew what they were missing but um omaha to kitchener not really we're you know white kind of self-effacing self-doubting um mostly german founded protestant-ish kind of things um you know there's a slightly different attitude towards the queen but that's about it um as opposed to, like, I lived in Miami, and Miami is much more different from Omaha than Kitchener is from Omaha. 
I think the differences, the regional differences inside of Canada and inside of the United States are much larger than the differences between the two countries generically. So, you know, it happens that my region here matches my old region pretty well. So, yeah, it's, it, I really don't feel like I moved that far, you know, in comparison to people who change continents and languages and, you know, move among people of different religions and different skin colors. I mean, those people have um, not always chosen, but those people are on a much different road than my immigrant experience, for sure. It's one of those things that if life were longer and you had the option to live more of them, which is why when I hear theories about re reality being a simulation, I really hope that's true because <laughs> I want to uh, you know, exit this life at the distant future, I'm having a great time, but in the distant, distant, distant future, so far I can't even see it, uh, exit this life uh, and immediately turn around and start another round like, oh, what a wonderful game that was. Let me be this character this time and get back in there. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good to me. Yeah, that sounds great. Because I have no way to confirm that that might actually be the case, and every reason to suspect is probably not. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that writing is, some, in some ways, a good way to achieve that by proxy, because I can uh, have all of these experiences from the mm -hmm. comfort uh, of, of my nice office. I don't have a writing shed. So let's oh. talk about the writing shed. I'm fascinated okay. by this. Mm -hmm. uh, I read that it has uh, no Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. uh, no, no phones. Is that? Yeah, oh, how am I talking to you then, right? It has an <laughs> Ethernet cable. So every day at the end of the day, I hook up the Ethernet cable. Uh, and I leave it there long enough for all the computers in the house to sync up. So I have, um, and that way I don't lose work. You know, that way the computer here backs up to the cloud. So I never lose more than a day's work, even if there's a crash. Because um, I have lost more than a day's work in the past. So now I am paranoid. But if you unhook the Ethernet cable, which is very easy to do, there's a little switch right behind me on the desk, um, then it's completely offline out here. Yeah, which is great. I love that. I had a computer stolen, and I lost the first 10 chapters of the original version of Altogether Now, uh, which uh, if it had been like 40, forget it. I'm not writing those again. Uh, because it was just 10, I, I, th I think it was just an opportunity to revise and improve and write a brand new version. But then mm -hmm. I became a, a backup, uh, uh, what's the word, religiously, uh, religious about backing up from then mm -hmm. on. What's the most you've ever lost? Um, half a novel. Same thing. It was a computer. It was a computer. Uh, my computer and my notebook and its external backup, because I was traveling, were all in one bag. Uh, and the bag was lifted out of a taxi or a van or something. I don't remember. But yeah, it was was I think about fifty thousand words, and I didn't I didn't rewrite it. I cannibalized parts of it um, and used it again in the future, but in a completely unrecognizable way. So I don't know if anybody's been following me online for 15 years. I don't know that there is anybody, but, you know, I used to be writing this Aztec novel. I'm never going to write the Aztec novel. Yeah. Oh, you never say never. I mean, it might, it might come back to you someday, right? No, but I used, I used the part of it that really fascinated me. I used the idea of, um, well, the Aztecs famously performed uh, human sacrifice to keep the universe in order. Uh, and one of the sets of people that they sacrificed were kind of children who were raised to it in a really, like, they were half divine, very privileged, very nearly royal children 
who were raised in a life of privilege. And as far as you can tell from the fact that, you know, they didn't survive to write their own story down, were willing to do this. And, you know, and then they turned 15 or whatever. I don't remember. It's been 15 years since I did the research. <laughs> they, they reach a certain age or, you know, the, the moment comes around and they're sacrificed to keep the universe in order. And I use that idea. I use that idea in a science fiction setting. So I, that's the basic idea behind the Scorpion rules, is these are, these are literally the children of royalty who are being kept hostage to global peace. So there's an organization, well, actually, there's a mad AI um, that runs something that calls itself the UN that takes the children of royalty hostage. And if your country ever goes to war, then you know, your, your royal kid gets the chop. Um, a system which has worked for them to keep peace for 400 years. And so the lead character is one of these people who has for seven generations been raised to this and is willing to go along with it. So I use the whole idea. And so I won't go back and use it again in its original setting. I scrapped it for parts. So... Well, it sounds like, though, in, in your version, it, it kind of is effective. Yeah. I mean, 400 years, that's, 400 that's years hard to argue right? with. <laughs> 400 years of peace is hard to argue with. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of, it got the original jacket and packaging on it was very dystopian. It was very, um, it was very Hunger Games divergent kind of packaging around it. And I'm like, Really, guys? Because this is not a dystopia. This is a system that's working. You know, it's a, it's a difficult world, but except for the seven kids at the center of this, everybody else is getting a pretty good deal. You know, and there's one of them, of course, there's one of them who's the fish out of water, whose, you know, country recently underwent a revolution and he gets thrown in at the deep end, whereas all the rest of them have been raised to it. And he's like, let's overthrow the system! And they're like... Um, a, should we? And B, can we? Uh, so his role is mostly to get his friends into danger and trouble. So he's, in any other book, he would be the hero. And in this book, he's kind of like, Elliot, sit down. Shut up. <laughs> so, <laughs> love him. He's very brave. He's very smart. Um, but yeah, he's um, he's not as clued in as the rest of them. <laughs> And so he's he's in he manages to be both a monkey wrench and a kind of hero at the same time. It's, he's interesting, but he it's not his story; it's the other person's story. Were you? And this may be a question you choose not to answer, which is perfectly fine. Um, but were you able to resolve the philosophical question in your head of whether or not that's okay? That if you're one of the seven, you'll just take one for the team. No. I mean, this is this is the big thing that this book is grappling with, and it's basically an unsolvable question, right? It's it's. Um, did you read the ones who walk away from Omalas? No, no. Oh, you need to read that. It's a short story by Ursula K. Le Guin. Okay. Uh, and when I say short, I mean it's maybe five, ten pages. It's very, very short. I can knock and, that one out this afternoon. You bet. Yeah. It's the story of, there's a, there's a town called Omalas, which is perfect. It's, you know, this joyful, wonderful, perfect town in which everything is working well. Um, except 
for some reason, the reason that it's working well is there's a child being kept in a cellar who's just so miserable and neglected that they're hardly human. And everybody who stays in this town knows this. But there are a few people who, when they, um, they come and they see this, um, they're, they're shown this child at a certain point and they're explained that this is, this is why and how it works. And they, um, they look at this child and they get really quiet. And then after a while, they pack up their bags and they walk away. You know, and the, um, the, last, the last line of that story is, they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omalas. Um, the Gwen was, yeah, she's a hero. She's so good. So I think that's a, it's a basically unresolvable question. Um, how much are we willing to ask other people to sacrifice and how much should we sacrifice ourselves for the greater good? Um, is, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those questions that we all have to grapple with, but nevertheless, it doesn't have an answer. So yeah, most of my books come down to something huge and like, what are we going to do about death? Kind of, kind of question. <laughs> and they don't come up with an answer. They just come up with a story. Do you, and I've read that you're working on a sequel to The Scorpion uh, King. Is that right? The Scorpion Rules. No, there are two sure. of them. Whatever um, I say, The Scorpion King with the rock. Oh, my God. How embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's Scorpio Races is the one I usually get. People get those books mixed up so often that I expect the water horses to come out at a certain point. Um, I there are two of them, and they're kind of a, a diptych, and they stand by themselves. They're they're a mirror pair. I always kind of wanted to write a third one, um, but at this point, publishing being what it is, I don't think that's happening. Uh, I have a prequel, which may someday find its way into the into the world in one form or another but it's i don't know it's publishing is publishing is weird publishing is hard there's a certain number of things i can't say um but yeah it's it exists and uh and may someday find its way into the world but i'm not working on that universe right now and this is something that that interests me we uh, got off on a tangent early and i didn't uh I don't, everybody's gonna read your bio so we're good uh but uh, something i wanted to ask you about is your first novel plain kate mm -hmm. uh won the canadian i'm gonna make sure i get this right it's the canadian children's literature award which is called which is basically canada's newberry is that an accurate assessment yeah yeah it's called the td usually after the bank that sponsors it the td canadian children's literary award literature award one of those two things uh yeah everybody just calls it the td it's a big shiny sticker that comes with a whole lot of money yeah it's really you're <laughs> winning that for your for your debut novel it was a, it right what yeah it was, it was, <laughs> absolutely it was it was um i don't know i just won this I just won the Governor General's Award, which is the other really big Canadian award. And I have a feeling that I'm supposed to come to some kind of, like, writerly sang-froid about it. Like, oh, you know, there are so many wonderful books, and it's an honor to be recognized by one's peer. But I'm I'm totally not there. I'm totally like, oh, yes! Thank you, writing <laughs> gods! Thank you! <laughs> 
I mean, I'm aware that it's kind of a crapshoot. I've been on the other side of awards juries, so, you know, I'm aware that it is in no way an objective honor. Don't care. When you win it, it feels like, uh, you know, oil poured on your head by the priests of the gods. It's like, oh, yes, this is so good. Oh, um, the TD is, really was, particularly fun because it's, TD is a bank, the Toronto Dominion Bank. And so every year used to be, it's, it's in flux right now as TD reconsiders its commitments. But every year the, the whole Canada children's literature community used to gather together and you get all these children's authors and publishers and librarians and stuff attempting to wear ties and dresses and things, which is fun by itself. And instead of having, you know, both the yellow cheese and the orange cheese, as you get at a really swanky literature function, you get a bank's budget. So it's this big space with a band and a sushi bar and, you know, and free drinks. And then you go in and there's this high production Oscar-like thing. And then they call your name. It's, Do you know going in for that one that you're, you're going to be the, you, you knew going in you were going to be the winner, right? Not for the um, not for the TD. I knew for some of the smaller awards, but for the TD, they genuinely didn't tell me. Wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think they were meant to. They, uh, I got the "you absolutely must come to this" uh, speech, but it was my first novel, so I didn't really read too much into it. Did you have your uh, fake? Uh, I'm so happy for you. Clap all prepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what, uh, how long had, uh, when, when did you write, I'm assuming that Playing Kate is the, it's not the first book you've written because you've written some poetry. Is that the first piece of fiction? How many books in was that for you that you, that you wrote no, that? It was, it was my, everyone is going to hate me. It was my first piece of fiction and it was, and it won a big award first time out. I, um, I know no profanity, but I, I have heard that I got up on stage and said, you know, this is my first novel. And someone at the, in the very back row went, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> they were swearing. Um, and I'm, I'm aware that this is a response that writers will have. But yeah, I published my first attempt at a novel. I do not have a hidden novel in a drawer. No, not me. There's a, a, a thing, something I've been fascinated by. Is my, my, one of my favorite shows is Rick and Morty. Everyone should watch it. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's this wonderful episode that was at the Rick Lannis mix-up. Uh, and they've got this wafer cookie in it that uh, if you eat it, uh, it's uh, got the uh, fused with the experience of uh, Rick. Uh, I think he's uh, his daughter says, I love you, Daddy. And they've captured that moment, that memory, and it's in the cookie. And every time you eat the cookie, you can re-experience that love. That's what I want. Give us the simple Rick wafer. Give us the experience of what it's like that for, for your debut novel to, to, to win to win big. You must have been on top of the world, right? I was, absolutely. It was, it was astonishing. It was really, um, it's very strange because it's, I mean, it is in a way a very quiet novel. I mean, it's a high fantasy with witch-burning mobs and big magic and monsters and stuff in it. But in a way, it's a very quiet novel. It's a, it's about an orphan girl whose father was a woodcutter, uh, a woodcarver, which my father is too. Um, it's a Russian favorite fantasy. It's you know she's very quiet. She's highly skilled, but actually, I always write these characters. When I was a kid, 
Star Trek, right? So there's Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, and I was firmly on Team Spock. I am always drawn to the characters who give you nothing but the occasional crack in the facade. I love to watch those people on the, on the page, on the stage, on the screen, these people who are very shut down and contained. And, you know, and then my editor will write in the margin, what is she feeling? And I'm like, she doesn't know. And if she did know, she wouldn't tell you. You know, so I've, I've learned to put that on the page very slowly because every editor, I think, fell in love with Captain Kirk has been my experience. But I was very firmly on Team Spock. So this is one of these characters who's in a self-protective shell, who, you know, doesn't know what she's feeling. And she, it's a very, in a way, a very quiet, meditative book. And then it was on a poster in every bank in Canada, all Christmas long, and on billboards, and the radio, and the television. And it's it's... Like, a baseball stadium full of people has read this tiny, quiet little book about an orphaned woodcutter girl and her talking cat. Um, it's... Odds are uh, multiple people are reading it as we're talking. <laughs> when you get to I a certain size, right? Does that do you, do you think about that sometimes? Just about how many people are probably reading something you've written right now? No. That's a new thought and a terrifying one. Good Well, Lord. there's one for about 2 a.m. tonight. <laughs> one second. <laughs> Give it some thought. <laughs> no, I, I sometimes think about, like, I'm, gonna, I'm going to a high school this afternoon. And because Plain Kate is, you know, I guess it came out in 2011. It won an award. And it came out in 2010 and won an award in 2011. So when I go to high schools... I often run into kids who read this in like sixth grade, less so now as the kids age out. Um, but they'll, they'll be like, you wrote that? Um, which makes a real change from going to a bookstore and it's like, oh, would I have read anything by you? I'm like, no, you never heard of me. It's fine. Just don't ask, okay? We're not going to go through the whole thing where I list my things and you've never heard of any of them, okay? We're just going to move past that phase of the conversation. But the high school kids, sometimes I actually find one who's read it. And they're always just like, <gasps> I think they're like me. They believe the books were basically written by unicorns. Um, you know, and so to have I an... You, you took kind of, dictation from a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, is that how that works? I should have tried to capture one when I was still a virgin. <laughs> well, when, uh, how long did that book take you to write? Oh, ages, like six years. In my defense, I wrote two books of poetry and had two children in those six years. But yeah, it was, it was just, yeah, I think it took about six years to write it and another oh, two, three to get it, you know, edited by my my agent and then sold and then edited by my editor and then out into the world so it's a it's a long process for that first novel did you have an agent for that one or was that the book that you secured an agent with no i yeah so that was the book i secured an agent with i i submitted it more or less over the transom i um i 
went to the bookstore. I made a list of where I wanted my book to end up when it grew up, you know, and whose agent I really wanted. And then I looked up all those agents. Now, this was 2008, so it wasn't super easy to find all those people. Um, but I eventually did find out who represented everybody that I really loved. And I made a list of agents, and I queried my top one, and I got it. Again, a thing that is going to make people absolutely despise me. But there you go. Uh, well, haters going to hate. We don't have time for yeah, that. Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not the usual publishing story. I'm very well aware of this. My husband is also a novelist, and his story looks nothing like this. His story is a much more typical story so but he doesn't hate me and i take joy from that so or at least he hides it really well <laughs> as i was uh looking over like i said stalking you online doing my my due diligence making sure that i'm not squandering our opportunity by uh talking about rick and morty when i could be asking you important questions <laughs> um and uh, I just saw award after award after award. I know you've just won uh, the newest one here, the the General Counsel's Award. Governor General. The Governor, Governor. General is the Canadian head of state. Gotcha. Yeah. Yes, yeah. forgive my uh, my my Americanness. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of it before I moved north of the border either. But it's it's the big swanky one. It's like the National Book Award. It's you know they give it in I think seven categories. So there's uh, fiction, poetry, playwriting, nonfiction, and children's literature in both illustration and text. So mine is the children's or young people's literature text award. So yes, it's it's the big swanky, put on a ball gown, go to the equivalent of the White House kind of award. That's next week at ball gown. Oh, yeah. that's very exciting. <laughs> I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, uh, to ask, was well, something like that, there's this, uh, I'm revealing how sad my mind works, little bits of pop culture get uh, stuck in there. There's an old episode of Tiny Toons where the joke is Meryl Streep is winning another Oscar and they she doesn't get up for it, they bring it to her and then she just drops <laughs> it in her purse, which is overflowing with Oscars and she's got a yawns. Is there a point with all these awards where it ever feels like that or is it always fresh and exciting every time? It's uh, It hasn't gotten old yet. I mean, it's only five novels deep. Uh, no, no, it's it's not old. It's um, they they called me with this before they announced it to the public. So this one I actually knew about, um, and I but I wasn't supposed to tell anybody. I wasn't even supposed to tell like the rest of my family. But that was just a completely non-starter because I was being so uncharacteristically weird on the phone that everybody gathered around me. To see if, you know, either I'd won the lottery or someone had died. Something must have happened, right? <laughs> <laughs> but everybody did a really good job keeping the secret. So, no, it doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. I mean, you write. It's it's weird writing. It's You, you sit. I, I sit in this shed. And you can't see how small it is. But it's really quite small. I could almost reach out my hands and touch both walls. Um and, you know, it's quiet. It's very quiet out here. I sit out here and I talk to fictional people three days a week. And it's every once in a while they chuck in front of a gym full of high school students or a cocktail party full of publishers as if those were overlapping skills. But basically, I sit very quietly and talk to fictional people for years at a time. And it's not lonely, but it is singular. 
it is, you know, this very quiet interior experience. Um, but what you basically want from it is for the book to find other readers so that other people could have the other half of that experience. You know, I create this character and then you read this character and somehow it meets in the middle and this person comes alive and you'll actually like laugh at them or cheer for them or cry for them. And, you know, so you need that experience and getting the awards kind of means it's proof that you made at least one person have that experience. You know, the judge picked yours. Um, and it means that other people will find the books. The GG is the award in Canada that's like, my kids read this book. This is the first book that I've written that my children have read because it's for younger readers and they're getting bigger. Um, the GG is the kind of award that means their kids might get to read this book. So no, it doesn't get old. <laughs> it, it means a lot. But, and so now when you come out to your... Uh to your writing shed, uh, do you sit down and you say, okay, here I am, award-winning Aaron Bo. this is no problem, let's do it, or do you still feel that same existential anxiety and fear when you get going, or have you reached some kind of peacefulness because you know you're going to be read? Um, I, I've, I'm still working for peacefulness. Um, I'm such an imposter that I can't quite manage proper imposter syndrome. I... <laughs> I actually know that I'm very talented. Um, I also feel like I'm squandering it all the time. Like I'm not writing the right thing or I'm not writing fast enough or, you know, it's that this will be the book where it finally all catches up with me. Um, so I'm, I have faith in my talent, which almost seems like an external thing to me. Um, you know, classically, I used to study Latin. And, and many people know this now because Elizabeth Gilbert pointed it out. But in, um, in Latin, genius is not a thing that you are. It's a thing that you have. It's an external, it's, it's a friendly spirit, really. It's a muse. And sometimes it shows up and sometimes it isn't. You know, so sometimes the muse shows up and sometimes it doesn't. But you just got to sit here and wait for it. And I actually feel like my talent is like that. It's like, it's, it's just a gift. And I, you know, but I, I don't always feel like I'm using it well. So that's my imposter syndrome is not feeling like I'm using it well. And I don't know. Um, I, I suppose there will probably never be a point where publishing just puts a gold star on my paper and says, hey, good job. You're using your life well. I think if you're writing for that reason, probably it's not going to work out. <laughs> it's never going to be the thing that validates your parking here on planet Earth. You know, I don't know. Um, we all love you now. You are complete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really feels like a book contract should come with a writer that says, you know, good job with your life. You know, way, way to go. And indeed, we, we everyone now loves you. You're done. Do it again sometime if you feel like it. But it doesn't feel like that. I wanted to ask you about some of these awards, uh, specifically to circle back to something you'd said before, well, also because it's fun to talk about awards. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but you were talking about uh, you had a prequel that you weren't sure would go anywhere because of uh, where publishing is. And I know, obviously, anytime I say, what are your problems with publishing? It's like <laughs> saying, would you like to commit career suicide? Go ahead. <laughs> 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 so that's not what we're going to do. 
Uh, but it you. does shock me sometimes when, when I talk to authors that I consider to be a big deal that if anybody should be able to walk into the publisher's office and say, here, I've written this, publish it. But ma'am, no, don't but ma'am me. I have things to write. I'll be in my shed. You get on it. Uh, and I'm always shocked to hear that that's not the case. How, I mean, certainly you have to have some kind of cachet. There has to be some things you could get done that other writers couldn't get done at this point, right? Absolutely there are. I, I have a really good agent. Um, and I think she could probably get anything I wrote in front of the people that I would like to see it. I really do. I, it's like if I I'm re- I'm working on a middle grade now. I'm very happy with my middle grade editor, Cat. I am not shopping around, but <laughs> I um I love her very much. But I there are many middle grade editors that I admire, and if I wanted them to read this book, to read a manuscript and consider it, I could get that done. And that is not a privilege that you have as a beginning writer. Like get just getting it read. Just getting it out of the slush pile is just a huge step. It's a huge deal. So, I mean, yeah, there's stuff I can get done, but not everything. I mean, there were, there will be, I get books turned down, um, not by all editors, but by some editors. I've never had a book that I couldn't publish. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I've, I've pitched my dream books at dream editors and gotten no's and I've, you know, and then they find some home somewhere else. And so far it's always worked out, but it's not, no, it's not, it's not a smooth road. I always try to tell people who aren't in publishing that it's kind of like selling a house. It's, you know, you live in it, you work in it for a really long time. And then you make this big, you know, objective and usually a financially big deal kind of transaction about it. So it's like that, except with more wild cards and uncertainty and opportunity for personal judgment. So <laughs> if you think selling a house is fun, you will probably like publishing a novel. Um, if you don't, then, you know, buckle up because it's a lot like that. But being I assume part of that metaphor is once you've sold the house, you can't complain when the uh, new owners put something up in the lawn you don't like or... <laughs> do some do some reconstruction yeah yeah well once you've written a novel it really belongs to its readers in any case but yeah um i will occasionally complain to other author friends it's like oh the cover you know oh the tagline oh why but um you know they know what they're doing i don't know how to market a book so I let the people who market books, market books. I mean, hats off to indie writers, to self-published writers who are doing it all for themselves. I've got like nine people working on my book, at least, just to get it out into the world. And, you know, and it still feels sometimes like it's just going to sink below the ocean of publishing, like a delicate little paper lantern, you know. I go, goodbye, beautiful book. Um so hats off to the people who can do it, but I'm not one of them. I don't know how to do it. So I try not to second guess those guys too much. I just had this fantasy and I haven't, I've talked to enough authors now to, to realize that this, nobody has this fantasy, probably uh, Stephen King, J.K. Rowling don't have this fantasy. Uh, but I like to imagine that there could come a point in an author's career where an editor says, I think you should make this change. And then you sit across from them and you put your awards on the table and say, well, my little <laughs> friends here say, no, my little <laughs> friends say we're doing it my way. <laughs> and then that's the end of the discussion. <laughs> 
No, but I mean, you should be able to turn down any change you want from your editor. Um, I mean, some of them are going to be deal breakers. Some of them are going to be like, well, then I guess we can't work together on this book. But ultimately, it has to be your book. If, uh, if someone suggests a change to it that... Remember I was talking about the scorpion rules is the story of this girl who's willing to go along with the system and this boy who's totally not. One of the earliest pieces of feedback I got for, from it was switch it. Tell it from the boy's point of view. You know, he's a fish out of water. It'll make it a lot easier to understand the system. It's much more typical of a, diver of a divergent Hunger Games pretties kind of style plot. Someone thrown in over their heads. You know, it'll just make the book a lot more commercial. And I'm like, yes, you're right. It would make the book a lot more commercial, but I'm not interested in that. You know, so I, you know, you turn that piece of advice down. Um, and that, that is a decision that cost me a professional relationship in a way. Um, but it's, you know, it was the right decision for the book. And it's not a book that landed badly. That's a book with Simon and Schuster. So I, you know, I'm not sad about the decisions. But I also see where, you know, the people giving me the advice are coming from. It really would have been a much more commercial, much more typical book. If I'd flipped the whole thing, if I'd made it, you know, from the boy's point of view, if the girl had fallen in love with the boy instead of her female best friend. You know, this is a piece of advice that I also got is, why can't they just be best friends? Do they have to be gay? This is in 2010 or so. So do they have to be gay was still an acceptable question. Um, if you told if, me 1956, I'd say, eh, I guess. But that's not, that's too recent. <laughs> no, but you don't know how fast it's changed. It's, I was told that it was, even in the two years it took me to finish it and get it to market, it went from being, oh, that's really going to limit the audience. Are you sure? To, no, I think we can use this as a hook. Just, you know, there was almost nothing in 2010 that was, you know, queer, young adult, and fantasy. The queer stuff was all still problem novels, and God bless her, Madeline Lowe's ash. I, you know, the Cinderella story. Um, There's really very, very little. This is one of the first, and they packaged it. I'm going to reach behind me and grab it. Hang on. Oh, sure. Treat your readers to a view of my bookshelves. I don't see the awards back there. Where are they? Nope. Well, they're on the shiny, shiny books. Can oh, you tell okay. me this is about <laughs> lesbians on their goat farm? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I figured that's out. exactly what I figured <laughs> <laughs> You know, so, you know, the packaging is very, the packaging does not, this is the, the science fiction, they repackaged it for the paperback. So now it looks much more like science fiction and much less like uh, dystopian, which I was very grateful for. I love both covers. Um, I think both covers are great, but, you know, it's it, it certainly has got a, science fiction cover not a you know not a story you can't even tell that it's about uh, that it has a female lead so it's yeah i mean it's very sub rosa in a way is that something where you can weigh in where you ha have this ideal cover 
uh, me, award-winning Aaron Bo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to pack books, so I, 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 um, I try not to second-guess that. Okay, here's the real deal. You get a certain amount of author tantrums you can pitch. <laughs> it's definitely not more than one a book. Um, so you can pitch a tantrum about your proposed cover if you really hate it, but you need to save it in case you need the tantrum later. So if it's reasonably close to what you wanted, then you should just go with it. No, I don't get a lot of input on covers. Um, this one did have a proposed cover that I was like, ooh, I don't think so. And they changed it. Um, but you don't, get a, you don't get a lot of them. So I, uh, I've been lucky in covers, actually, by and large. I have a couple of foreign editions where I'm like, I don't know what book that is. <laughs> Did I, I write think that one? It's my name on the cover, but it doesn't look like anything that I wrote. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm lucky to have foreign editions at all, so I just kind of move on with that and make my piece. Something I wanted to, to also make sure I ask you about, because this, this fascinates me about you, and I'd be kicking myself if I didn't ask you a little bit more, because uh, we blew right past CERN, uh, and I realized <laughs> you were being a little bit uh, self-effacing. Oh, it's just... Uh, theoretical uh, particle physics, it's, it's, it's not, not a big thing. <laughs> um, but you, your day job fascinates me because you're, you're what, you're the sci science reader for the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. Probably mm -hmm. that role has changed since I work there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how, how is that writing different from your fiction? And how is it possible that you can be so very right-brained and left-brained or is that a myth that we've been taught and you can do that's both at the same time anytime you want? Yeah, that's that's totally a myth. Um, your, uh, yeah, the right brain, left brain thing is, I don't know, it somehow entered pop psychology, but it has very little basis in neuroscience. And neuroscience is something I'm super interested in, so I am tempted to go off on a complete tangent. But instead, I'll just say that science is full of daydreamers. It's full of people who are just, you know, living this sustained dream. There's one guy in our building who's reinventing quantum field theory, and one of these days I'm going to run him over in the parking lot. We have, we have this kind of, like, tally of which researcher is most likely to die in traffic. And, you know, so there's this one really, really smart mathematical physicist who is literally rewriting the roots of quantum field theory. Um, who's just, just lives in a little space of his own, just delightful human being. But, so to clarify uh, for, for listeners, you're going to run him over because he won't see you coming and you'll miss him, not because you're, you're targeting him. Just because he's, just because he's, uh, he's wandering in traffic. Uh, you know, he's a daydreamer. And, you know, perimeter, it's not a big, it's, there are about, oh, 150 scientists in the building on any given day. So it's not huge. It's not a university, but it has a chamber orchestra. We have that many classically trained musicians that we have. That's one of the things they do for fun. They have a chamber orchestra and, you know, and they have a squash tournament and, you know, they're always off to play hockey or off to play soccer or stringing up uh, slack lines in the park and learning to juggle, you know. I just was talking to one of the postdocs yesterday. She's gone off. I think she's a faculty member somewhere now, but when she was a postdoc recently, and she's become a world-class ultramarathoner. So, you know, they're not just brains on legs. 
they're daydreamers who are deeply involved in the world. Um, and it's fun to be with them. So, and on the other hand, you know, so physicists can be very right-brained or what you think of as right-brained, very wool gathering, very interested in, you know, subtle and unseen connections and not straight ahead linear kind of thoughts. Um, whereas writers, you know, sometimes you just got to go straight down the middle of your linear thought and tick off every single box, you know, sometimes it requires just intense logical concentration, maps and charts and, you know, timelines and that kind of thing. So um, I think that's probably a myth that our, that our worlds are that far apart. Usually our academic training is that far apart, but our brains aren't really that far apart. Something that really interested me is I uh, read part of an interview with you that uh, you said that you, when you were younger, you were trying to decide whether you wanted to be a theoretical physicist or you wanted to be a writer. Uh, what? <laughs> Those are the choices? Was, was, was the third one, <laughs> I don't know, Olympic athlete? <laughs> that's, that's something else. What was it that made you choose science? And then what was it that brought you back to writing? Or have you ever had to choose? Have, no, you, have you always had both? You go off to university and it's really hard to major in both. Um, theoretical physicists and only theoretical physicists are probably going to care when I say I'm actually more interested in the experimental side because I like to get my hands dirty. Um, there's a there's a cultural divide. I was just reading a I was just reading a introductory article to something. I don't remember what, but the introductory article started like, this is an introductory text, which means it's suitable for experimental physicists or theorists who don't mind getting caught reading something dumb. <laughs> like, okay, I, this, is, this is the culture of physics in a nutshell. Uh, the theorists look down on the experimentalists and the experimentalists are, are like, yeah, you come over here and lay cable trays. You try it, bucko. What are you doing over there? You're not doing any experiments. So <laughs> I like, I like, um, I like the experimental side of things. Um, but I work with theorists now. What on earth was I saying? Oh, you can't major, you can't major in both. I tried. I really tried to major in both, but at a certain point you have to pick. And I picked physics because I figured I could keep writing on my own, whereas physics is something that's quite difficult to do on your own. Especially, you know, high energy particle physics is not something you can just set up in your backyard. Um, so, yeah, I picked physics. Then I went to graduate school where a number of things happened to me, including getting quite sick. But my eventual realization was I like learning about physics a lot more than I like actually doing physics. I like that moment of understanding. I like like grappling with a big idea um, with an experiment or, you know, just with a text until something comes clear in my head. I love that. Doing it? Not so much. You know, I'm, when I worked at CERN as a graduate student, um, you may have heard there's a big experiment called uh, CMS, the Compact Muon Solenoid. It's, you've seen pictures of it, it's huge. It's this big round space age looking thing. It's like three stories tall and it's all made of like tiny little Lego blocks about yay big. Um, and they're all glued together, right? So I was the person who tested the glue to make sure it wasn't gonna melt in the high radiation environment. That's you know, an important so job. It's an important job and one you should give to your junior graduate students. 
like to point out that it has not melted in the high radiation environment. Go team. (laughs) But, you know, that's really not a lot of fun. That kind of the endless grind of it is not a lot of fun. The endless bashing your head against a problem that's stumped people for, how long are we looking for the Higgs boson? About 40 years. Um, You know, really not. Not a fabulous... uh, Some people just thrive on that. Some people thrive on impossible problems, and some people write novels. So I have found that um, what I really like now in physics is I get to grapple with those big outside ideas, these big cutting-edge ideas without actually having to bash my head against the math for five years at a time or actually having to, you know, stay up all night and do experiments for 10 years at a time before you get to some kind of conclusion. So I just interviewed uh, Carlo Rovelling, who wrote um, Seven Brief Lessons of Physics. He's really good. Um, You know, and he has this brand new idea about black hole to white hole transitions. And so I spent a couple weeks reading papers on black hole to white hole transitions and on loop quantum gravity until I get enough of an idea of it in my head that I can put it on paper in a thousand words. And that is a great joy. That is just building that kind of understanding for myself is a great joy. And building it on the timeline of a writer is much more satisfying for me than building it on the timeline of a researcher where you only get that experience once every, I don't know, I think Rovelli's been working on this project for four or five years now. So. As opposed to a novel, we can, I don't know, how long does a novel take you to finish? Depends on the novel, but uh, yeah, four or five years doesn't sound completely out of whack. Two, one, two, realistically two. I'm writing two at the moment, um, and they're, they've each been going for about a year and a half, and they're each about half done. So, so I'm fascinated by this uh, in part to. Sure, you know you're 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 blade the daywalker. You're walking in both worlds because um, you're you're working that uh, perimeter part of the time, and you're going in there. So how how is that different writing there, and how does your approach to writing change with that versus when you're in your garden shed, uh, mm-hmm. and it's time to it's time to write your your next novel? Um, they're really quite different. Um, I mean the they they have words in common clearly. I mean they're both crafts that are basically made out of words. But like this Rovelli piece that I just did, it's about 1,200 words long. And it took me a couple weeks to really nail it because most of it is, you know, putting in my, get, building a new understanding in my head. And, you know, that understanding is out there. I don't need to create it. I just need to attain it somehow. Um, whereas I think writing is a lot more like being a researcher. It's much more putting your time in and slowly discovering things. I um, I don't know, we want to talk plotters versus pantsers, which I think is an artificial sure. distinction. Um, I never outline. I try, I've tried so hard. I think it would probably make my life easier if I could do it. Um, sorry, I'm making sure my dog isn't eating that. Uh, no, she's not. There's a <laughs> there's there's a uh, there's an ice melting salt on the deck like a bag full and uh, and I don't know if it's safe for animals uh, and I would really hate to see her eat a bag full of salt in any case and she's a moron so she might 
she seems fine. Okay. Even safe, it seems like just a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think being a writer is a lot more like being a researcher. It's, um, I'm one of those writers, I think a better distinction than plotter versus pantser is like into inductive versus deductive writers. You know, there are um, inductive writers who write from an outline and then discover the details in that outline that they need to put in each scene. Right. So, you know what you need the scene to accomplish and then you deduce what you need. I might be getting induction and deduction backwards. Anyway, you figure out from knowing what you need the scene to do, what you need to put in the scene. And then there are people like me who like write the scene and then figure out what the scene is supposed to do and find the little details in the scene, which suggest the next scene. I can't write from an outline. I have to, you know, find the little details that inspire the next idea. I think that's probably much more how scientists work. So, you know, as a science writer, I'm, I'm writing from somebody else's ideas. And as a writer, I'm, discovering my own so really they're almost mirror opposites and the only thing they really have in common is you know the process comes out in words so um Hmm. it's a great joy for me to get to do both um you know having a day job even a half-time day job does take some of the pressure off trying to you know finish a book when you don't quite know how the book ends you know, I don't feel like I have to do that now that I have a day job. Yay! On the other hand, I really should finish this book. <laughs> the, the royalty track doesn't pull up uh, every six months and just beep, 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 and we dump the money. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's it takes some pressure off, and it gets me out of my head a little bit. And, you know, and I finish an article every couple of weeks, whereas I... You know, so you get a little gold star from the universe. It's like, well done, you. You accomplished a thing. Um, whereas if you're relying on that for novels, they don't come very often. So it's nice to have deadlines that are more than once every 18 months. And it's nice to have colleagues and it's nice to get out of the house. So I do. I, I enjoy my day job. I What I wish is that there were like 10 days in the week. You know, if I could write for three days, I go to perimeter for three days and... Then I write for three days, and then I have two days on the weekend. What does that make? Eight? I'm bad at this. You know, I could I could write for five days and then have two days on the weekend. That sounds perfect. That sounds fabulous. I would love that. But sadly, no one put me in charge of time. So. Well, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but keep going. We'll, we'll see how to shake that out. <laughs> All right. One of the things we're going to change about time is this time around – uh, we're not going to let the morning people set the social schedule just because they got there first. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to stay up to like two, three in the morning, and then we're going to set the social schedule. And it's going to say you need to be productive until like two, three in the morning, and then you can sleep as long as you want. And all the morning people are going to be, my body doesn't work that way. And we'll be like, too bad. So. <laughs> I assume that's one of the secret things that's happening at CERN. Uh, <laughs> is that they're, they're working on that. Sooner or later, we're going to have the mist. Uh, come out and cover the, the world with uh, monsters. <laughs> and like, that's where it started. Like. CERN is like a trailer park of science. There is really? nothing glamorous at CERN. It is just, it's a hodgepodge of 
you know, you know those buildings on your university campus that are like built of cinder block and barely finished on the inside? All right. So about like 50 of those sprinkled on a field in France. You know, and with a big fence around it for unknown reasons. Well, partly because an international border runs down the middle of it. But, um, yeah, it's... I assume they keep out the terrorists that want to unleash the mist. (laughs) Probably. Probably. And the people who want to try the skydiving from uh, the... With one of the Rob David Brown books had people skydiving and antimatter at CERN. I'm like, I spent a lot of time at CERN, and I'm fairly sure there was no skydiving facility. But okay. (laughs) No, it's just, I mean, it's, it's... graduate students and postdocs and you know people from all over the world spending seven months away from their family you know and drinking terrible cheap swiss beer and we do have a very nice there was a very nice croquet lawn on which international croquet tournaments were occasionally played i i don't know the rules of croquet i spent a long time trying to deduce the rules of croquet and didn't succeed but that was probably the most glamorous part of CERN when I was there. I have this, uh, I have had so many uh, theories about how writing might work. That's, that's what I like to do. I do some research, but then I also like to tell myself little stories about how maybe the world's this way. Let's not verify yeah. it. Let's assume that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I talked with um, uh, Susan K. Quinn, who's a wonderful author who has uh, a former rocket scientist with NASA. <laughs> Uh, I talked with uh, Dr. Padma Bukatraman, uh, who is a former top uh, oceanographer and, and, and current uh, professor and, and, and scientist and, and some other scientists along the way. It's, this is episode, I don't know, 58, 59, somewhere in there. We've done a lot of shows, lots of great guests. Go check them out, esteemed audience, listen to them all. They're amazing. But when I'm talking with these uh, women uh, who have this in, in, uh, background in science, I mean, that's not easy stuff. That's not uh, sleep in late come in, have my shirt half untucked the way I used to do when I was uh, managing a subway on the weekends. This is, <laughs> this is serious stuff. Does that discipline you think that you've developed, uh, just I've noticed this trend that uh, these, these science, uh, brilliant scientific minds are now writing brilliant books and having a great deal of success. And I'm wondering if there isn't some overlap where that training of both your mind uh, and, and your your work ethic um, translates over to your writing career uh, and, and provides some sort of benefit that way. Maybe. Um, I mean, I had this gap in the middle where I was definitely of the shirt untucked brigade. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of poetry. So I don't know. It's hard for me to think of it in terms of work ethic, but I tell you what the real connection is between uh, for me, between science and writing it's, it's the ability to bash your head against something for a really long time uh, until you uncover something interesting about it. Um, for example, let me grab a clip tissue here. Like when I was a kid, I, really, I was really interested in science. I wanted to be a physicist. I did not understand what that meant. Um, still don't to a certain extent. And I remember asking my like fifth grade science teacher or something, my fifth grade teacher wouldn't have been a science teacher. Like, why does a ball roll down a hill? Why is it's got potential energy when it's at the top of the hill. It's got kinetic energy at the bottom of the hill. What makes the kinetic energy better than the potential energy? Why does it like always roll down? Right. 
And she's like, well, sweetie, that would be the gravity. <laughs> uh, and I remember making little charts of this because I understood that that's what scientists do is like they make charts and put them on cork boards and take them to science fairs, right? So I made <laughs> little charts about this and put them on cork boards and took them to science fairs and people were like, well, sweetie, that would be the gravity. Did you like build a robot or something or a you know volcano out of out of baking soda? I'm like, no, I'm really interested in this ball thing. Okay, so I went to high school and I had a really excellent science teacher. She was fabulous, and I remember asking her, you know, why does this ball roll down the hill? What's the difference between the potential energy and the kinetic energy? And she's like, well, that's entropy. We're really not going to cover it in high school science, but you know, here's a book you could go look up and, you know, this, these are the laws of entropy and these are the laws of thermodynamics and this is how the universe works is, you know, this potential energy turns into, turns into motion and then the motion turns into disorganization and that's how that works. And you're like, okay. So you get to um, university and they're like, okay, entropy, here's how entropy works. And you take a whole, um, you know, a whole class on thermodynamics or at least half a term on thermodynamics and you learn the laws of entropy and you get some, you know, some grasp on how that works and statistical mechanics and all this stuff. And you figure you've, you've pretty much got the ball nailed. And then you get to graduate school and you ask, okay, the ball rolls down the hill with the entropy. And they're like, well, yes, but entropy contains an arrow of time. And almost nothing else in physics contains an arrow of time. Almost nothing else in physics contains a preference for whether the film is running forward or backwards. Um, very little. In fact, it may all be an illusion. We're not sure that it's real at all, time, as we experience it. And I'm like, wait, what? I was done. I was good with the entropy. They're like, yes, but, you know, and then you get these, you know, you get really off the deep end of theory, and that's where you start finding things that are new. Just by bashing your head against this simple question for years at a time. You know, so I think learning to bash your head against a simple question until you find the thing about it that's really kept you going on it is an excellent school skill for writers to have. Being in always a little bit over your head, you know, and trying to do something impossible. It's an excellent skill for writers to have, <laughs> you know. Um, the people I work with now at Perimeter, you know, they're trying to unify quantum mechanics and general relativity. It's one of the many things that they're trying to do, but many of the people in the building are trying to do that. The best minds in the world have been trying to do that for 80-some years. 80 years. Three scientific generations at least. And at this point, we have two decent guesses, and that's it. And does that excite you that this could be the eventually the one, and then 80 years of stalemate? You're welcome, Aaron Bo, award-winning no. author, out. Or uh, <laughs> does it fill you with a sense of despair? 80 years, obviously this isn't something that's going to happen. What are we doing here? No, I think, you know, there's a, there's a feeling of, like, community and continuum about it, you know? that you have to be willing to bash your head against something impossible so that you can do some tiny piece of it. Um, you know, it's, it's unlikely that anybody in the building is going to go, oh, here we go. This is how string theory works, and this is exactly how it predicts everything about the universe, and here is our unification of quantum mechanics and gravity. This is perfect. 
I mean, is this going to happen? No, we're going to get a little piece here and a little piece there and a little bit and a little thing. And, you know, there's always a possibility that we'll have a new Einstein who will just have a new story to tell. But most of us are, you know, writing a novel that talks to other novels that are, you know, writing, you know, one little piece of the story. I keep writing about ghosts. Uh, I've finally written a comedy, but it's set in a funeral home. <laughs> so I keep writing this, you know, what do we do about death story. Am I going to come up with an answer for what we do about death and the fact that we're mortal? Probably not. But can I continue that conversation? Sure. And might I come up with some tiny piece of it that's new or that helps other people think or move forward in theirs? I think that's possible. I think that's really possible. So, you know, I think that's the connection is, you know, being part of a community and trying something that's just totally impossible and trying to move it forward just inch by inch by inch. Do you have faith that, um, you know, 50, 200 years as fast as technology moves, five years, um, that at some <laughs> point it's uh, possible that somebody could come up with an alternative to death, be that... Uh, what are the what are they, what is that uh, Elon not Elon Musk the uh, theory that the I can't think of the term for when we can pass on to robots and we become robots and then uh, it's not a problem anymore transhumanism or the yes. singularity <laughs> so the scorpion rules and the swan riders are about transhumanism and the singularity um, and in, in my book of course it turns out to be a at the very least complicated idea if not an outright bad idea. Um, I don't know. I don't know what those, I don't pay a lot of attention to, um, I like neuroscience a lot, um, but it's, you know, it's something that I just read about. It's not something that I do or have any expertise or talk to experts in. But the more I read, the more I'm like, you guys don't have any idea what's going on in the brain. Just none. We just, you know, we're barely scratching the surface of how the mind works. The idea that we might be able to synthesize it somehow and encode it and move it, I think that could be quite a ways off. Well, the thing that bothers me about that is even if you can do it perfectly and you put my all of my brain and my essence in this new robot, mm -hmm. that robot that thinks it's me is going to have a nice life. I'll be here dying. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> have a wonderful time. Hook up with the robot they made of my wife. You guys are going to get along fabulously. Um, but... Uh, well, you were, you're working on the problem of how to potentially overcome this issue of death at some point. Where do you, where's the smart money? Where are you thinking that we might find a solution? I don't think there is a solution to death. I think we, you know, I think we're mortal and we die and it means something. And what and how we cope with it is one of the great human questions. Uh, and I don't think technology has the answer to it. I mean, suppose we were all suddenly immortal. Does that sound like a bad idea? Well, I've always heard that, and I'm a skeptic on this point, because I always hear that the reason that life is so wonderful is because it's finite. It has an ending, and that makes all of this more special. I and I say, yes, that. but isn't that exactly the argument that a person that has no uh, no say in the matter would have to make to live peacefully <laughs> yes. with it? Uh, if there's never been the other option, if there was, you know, let's try it. <laughs> let's see how it goes. Maybe after the first 500 years, like, you know what? I was wrong. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, exactly. Is we we probably won't know until we can compare. Um, 
I mean, I'm not a fan of death. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue the pro-death side of the of the. <laughs> but I, uh, I, um, I do think you know the fact that we die and essentially you know that we lose other people along the way is one of the great human questions. Um, that you know, I don't. I don't think it has a solution. I really. I've written novels with ghosts in them. I've written novels with, you know, um, the afterworld and, you know, I've written transhuman novels and, you know, they always kind of circle back around this. It's like, what do we do with the stuff that we can't do anything with? Um, and every book is, is a conversation with that, but none of the books have an answer really. And I don't know that technology is ever going to have an answer either. I mean, assuming we could do it tomorrow, assuming we could, like, upload our brains into computers, um, you know, does that change us fundamentally? Does it change who we are as people? Who are we without our sensory apparatus? Who are we without our bodies? I don't know. Um, and it's always going to be at least, it's always going to be some of us. We have never created a society where everyone is having the same experience. So there's always going to be some people who get it and some people who don't. And what does that do to us? Um, so I think it's a it's a it's a fun fictional conversation to have. Um, I don't think it's right over the technological horizon, but it's not my expertise, so I don't really know. I will tell you though, history of computing. They keep saying we're going to have a brain with we're going to have a computer with human-like intelligence in eh, 20 years. And they've been saying that since about 1950. <laughs> I also love that that's the, the standard is human intelligence. Nah, yeah. I'll wait till they get one that's past it. <laughs> Give me the smarter computer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, you're writing about ghosts, so I think it's fair to ask. Do you have some idea of what you can expect when death comes? Is it just the lights went out? I don't know what happened uh, anymore. I don't. I, I'm, I'm not existing, but I'm not bothered because I don't know that there was ever a me, so it's not a it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Or do you think that there is something beyond? I don't know. Uh, I was raised Catholic. My sister used to say, "You can't ever um, you can't ever recover. You can only reupholster." <laughs> uh, and I'm still in a sense a person of faith, but I'm, you know, I'm more like a seeker who hasn't found anything. And every once in a while I write stuff down about that. So I don't know. I think about it quite a bit. Um, the more so since my sister, my sister who I was just talking about died 15 years ago. God, doesn't seem like it should be 15 years ago, but, um, yeah, so I didn't start being obsessed with death then, but it certainly didn't help, you know. And I've been very ill, and I've seen people die. You know, I'm a I'm a kid who grew up in the in the. Um, I went to university in the early '90s, and you know, hung out with the um, gay boys, and a lot of them died. You know, so I've seen it all my life. Um, and I don't know what we do with it, and I don't. I don't have any idea what's next. I think the people who do have some idea what's next have basically just convinced themselves and they win. The people with faith win. They have great comfort in, you know, knowing that they're going to some kind of beautiful next world where God loves them. That's great. They win. Um, doesn't seem to be something you can just will yourself to have. 
it's you know once you start doubting it's it's hard to get rid of that it does strike me as fascinating that um that in some death situations, uh, your brain will trigger a release of DMT, so you'll mm-hmm. begin hallucinating. And mm-hmm. so, you know, some people will be dying. Oh my God, I really do see there's there's Grandma up there in the clouds with the harp, and I'm coming, Grandma. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if that's just a moment of hallucination, and then boom, consciousness obliterated. Don't worry about it. What mm-hmm. a nice thing to have. It's it's lovely, isn't it? It's like good job, neuroscience. Absolutely. You have to wonder about that from an evolutionary point of view. It's like, what was it? Like, if you just consider evolutionary pressures, if really nothing exists that isn't either random or adaptive, right? Which is a big open question. I don't know. Um, What is that adaptive to? Why would you want death to be pleasant? But it seems to be um, everyone I know who has ever worked in hospice or has been around a lot of dying people says it's usually peaceful even joyful um and i'm like huh okay well you know very glad to know that that sounds nice um but the scientist in me is like you know the little antelope that's running away from the cheetah and then it gets snatched is, is it having a joyful death? And if so, why? Because wouldn't it want to keep struggling and keep running away just on the chance that that might work? You know, wouldn't terror and fear be better adaptive? Maybe um, they have overwhelming kindness. I saw you over there looking hungry. I'm so glad you're going to get to eat. <laughs> how, how satisfied are you going to be after I'm in your tummy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's uh, I wanted to, uh, to follow that up because uh, now we have, we we've talked about uh, dying and what happens afterward. Oh, how wonderful! But I didn't forget. Esteemed audience thinks I did, but I didn't. What kind of creepy stuff happened at that cabin? Oh, the cabin. <laughs> okay. So sorrow's not is my horror novel. I don't read horror novels because I am super easily creeped out. You said Binucula wasn't scary, but I read it when I was like six and had to hang a cross over my bed to keep the vampire rabbits away. <laughs> For the record, I love Benicula, just not that scary. (laughs) I don't want to get angry, friends. You call yourself a middle grade ninja and you don't love Benicula. I do, I do. It's great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, anyway, I was scared by it. That is my level of tolerance for creepy books. Okay, it was set early and it was set low. So naturally, I wrote one. And it's about, um, it's a world in which not all shadows, but any shadow can contain this sort of hungry, amorphous force, some of which used to be human. And the ones that used to be human can watch and wait and plot. And if they touch you, you're in big trouble. So it's, you know, it's this world, um, it's set in the forest, there's a meadow in the forest and it's surrounded by a big a uh, fence made out of strings because the dead are repelled by these kind of cat's cradley kind of actions and, and rhymes. Um, and it's a it's a deeply creepy novel. It's, you know, it's the novel where I had to always keep track of where the sun was so that I could keep track of where the shadow was. And you just become hyper aware of, you know, shadows and movements that you can't source. Like, if you see something moving out of the corner of your eye, you don't just assume that's, you know, sometimes you read something, it's like, it's, you're reading it in December, but it's set in the summer, and then you go outside, and it's cold, and you're surprised. Mm-hmm, sure. You know? 
So I was having that experience, but over a long period of time. I was like deeply immersed in this world where the shadows were going to kill me. So naturally, I rented a cabin in the woods. Good thinking. Yeah. I had a deadline. <laughs> My kids were really little, and I had this intense deadline. So I'm like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to rent a cabin in the woods. I, I didn't have this office then, so I was like, we're going to run away, and we're going to finish this book. So I rented this little cabin on the Otter River down on Lake Erie, and um, literally in the woods. And I was writing one night at the kitchen table. And the house is lit up from the inside, which means you can't see outside, right? You can only kind of see the trees. And there's this kind of sense of bulk and the sense of movement outside, but you can't see out the window. Uh, and I'm writing in this little lit up room late at night, no one around. And I get to the part where the, like, the, um, the white hand, the, the amorphous force has got them kind of pinned down in the corner. And then there's a knock at the door. <laughs> I screamed so loud. I just, uh, it was like, it was the cabin owner. It was the guy that I'd rented it from coming to make sure that I was doing okay out there. And it's, it's one of those moments where I'm like, having a gun in the house is a bad idea, children. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I just fired randomly through the window out of fear. I just, I was so terrified because I'd spooked myself already and I was all tense and all worked up. And, you know, already literally afraid of my own shadow and this, you know, you know, the door is right there. This is a tiny little house. So it was, you know, it couldn't have been three feet away from my head. And all of a sudden there's someone there and a big noise and it's, yeah, I thought for sure I was going to die. And I had to talk him out of like, I'm a novelist. We're all like this, really. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> First time I read uh, Salem's Lot, uh, I was in my I was living in my first apartment, mm -hmm. uh, and my college buddy knew I was reading it. And of course, in that book, the vampires float up to the windows and they they knock on the window and say, "Let me in," and they wait for that invitation. And as soon as you say, "Yeah, come on in," you're my friend. You you haven't recently died or anything, right? I mean, you're flying, but otherwise it's cool. And then they attack you. Uh, and that's spoilers. That's Salem's Lot. Anyway, my buddy knew I was reading that, and there was just enough space from the porch to my bedroom window that he could stretch out and i was on the third floor so he was risking life and limb for this but he could knock on my bedroom window and poke his head over and i, I this is the most scared i've ever been I fell out of bed. oh my god that's just cruel <laughs> Nah, he had that feather in his cap forever. I don't know that it was worth the risk he took, but <laughs> he, he still brings it up occasionally. You remember that time I got you more than <laughs> you'll ever get me? Like, yeah, no, you win. <laughs> I don't have anything scarier for you. <laughs> have you ever had a, a paranormal experience or are all your ghost stories theoretical? All my ghost stories are theoretical, yeah. I have had dreams I can't explain. And, you know, when you talk to people, they have had experiences that they can't explain. Um, it doesn't surprise me as a scientist that certain things about the world are inexplicable or unexplained, at least. Um, you know, I think we know 10% of what we really need to know to get around in the world. So, um, but no, I've never, I've never had something that like just convinced me that there is an afterlife or alien life or, you know, ley lines or extrasensory perception or any of those things. 
Um, I've never seen a flying saucer. The steam audience knows I have to ask that question because I had. I always have to. Uh, I had a telescope when I was a kid, and I once saw like a string of falling stars moving slowly, um, and I never figured out what that was. And that's a fairly common sighting, like five or six lights in the sky moving in formation and slowly, but not an airplane. Um, so I did see that. Uh, it wasn't like, a, oh, my God, what the heck is that? It was uh, like, that doesn't look like anything that you expect to see in the sky when you're used to looking at the sky. Um, I still can't tell you what that is. So I guess kind of. On the other hand, I have worked with scientists. I have worked at uh, Los Alamos, not the bomb part. Uh, I am absolutely convinced that if scientists had found aliens, we would know about it by now. Why is that? Oh, just the idea of like 200 people keeping a secret like that is just boggling. No, no way. <laughs> I so, think they're terrible at it. I think that's why we have constant leaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, you gotta admire the faith of the conspiracy theory people in like organizational structures. Oh, sure. I'm like, wow, your fantasy government is a lot more efficient than my fantasy government. <laughs> well, I think that's part of what makes conspiracy theories so attractive, mm -hmm. uh, especially like if you're talking about like the assassination of John F. Kennedy. How terrifying to think that a guy can just get a rifle and just do that, just change right. the entire course of the, of the nation. How much more satisfying and how much more assuring to know that, no, there are secret reptilian people that control everything. You can't see them or know their motives, but chill. They got this. Go about your business. Yeah. <laughs> it's less random, right? It's 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 way less random, and in a way, it's more under control. It's just not under your control. Um, I think, in a way, it's comforting to people. You know, um, I've been reading a lot for a project mostly for about survivor's guilt, and you know, the basic thing about survivor's guilt is I think human beings would rather feel guilty than feel helpless, hmm. right? I think we would rather feel like this is somehow our fault than like we had no control. I think that's the, the basic root of survivor's guilt. Um, could be wrong about that, you know, uh, but that's, that's kind of what I'm coming around to, so. I'm sure there's a bit of a case-by-case -case basis with it, but sounds yeah. uh, solid to me. Makes yeah. Sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me, I know I'm talking your, your face off, uh, and I don't want to keep you talking forever, but I did have a couple of things that I specifically want to ask you about, because sure. only, uh, not, not only you, but, but I think would be, uh, you, you would be the person that I could best get the, the answer from. Uh, one, I wanted to ask you about writing about science for, specifically for your, the young adult market now, and now middle grade as well, uh, and your world building, because... Uh, obviously, as we've demonstrated aptly uh, over the course of this conversation and, and, and by your uh, bio available online right now, um, you've got a higher level of understanding of knowledge, certainly physics, than your average person. I wonder if there's some isolation, wonder walking around talking with uh, the rest of us who don't have that, um, where there's, or you don't know some of the things that I know. 
Um, I, I don't know if there's some separation, but then that has to be magnified a little bit more when you're writing for younger readers um, who maybe don't have, or certainly don't have the same scientific training. So how do you talk about uh, science for younger readers in a way that satisfies you, but that is still relatable for them that they're still going to be able to grasp and that doesn't get in the way of uh, the simple joy of the story? Mm-hmm. I think you're going to be disappointed in me. Because okay. my, my criteria for, for really good world building is that it hang together, not necessarily that it be, like, faithful to the universe. So, like, my transhuman characters um, in The Swan Riders and The Scorpion Rules, um, so they're transhuman intelligences, they're artificial silicon computer digitized intelligences that can possess other people through specialized implants that some of these other people have. Um, and that works by hand wavium and magnets. <laughs> there's there's a set of rules set out in the book about who they can do it to, what they what kind of equipment they need. You know, they're not just hopping from person to person. Um, you know, and that they have to have the implants and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but like, basically, this is a story about demonic possession with a layer of hand wavium and magnets on top of it. (laughs) Um, You know, it hangs together. It it hangs together really well. Like it's, you know, it's all the rules are laid out and you know, the, the plot exploits the rules in interesting ways. And I figured it out as I went around and I think people will find it very satisfying and very complete as a universe, but um, it's, it's not like, you know, Discworld or something where you're going to, or not Discworld, excuse me, Ringworld. It's not like, you know, the great science fiction, Silver Age science fiction, where you're going to learn about what exactly it takes to construct a Dyson sphere and why we might want to do that. It's, you know, it's much more like, what if demonic possession were real with hand wavium and magnets? <laughs> you know, every once in a while, I get just totally off the loop about some piece of research, you know, so like in Scorpion Rules, so these are my science fiction books, so it's more relevant there. In Scorpion Rules, you know, they're using magnetic launched ships. They're launching off a magnetic rail um, for suborbital craft um, because they're like post-fossil fuel society. And... You know, so I got really into magnetic rail launches. I'm like, what we really need in this world is like a Lofstrom loop, which is uh, a magnetic rail that goes up to space. So to launch things into space, you have this standing, you know, part. It's it's literally called a Lofstrom loop. You can look it up. And then I got like five, six days of research deep on that before I realized that none of the characters care about how the magnetic rail works. None of them. Any more than the characters in my contemporary novel care about how the internal combustion engine works. You know? They just have to show it working. And maybe I have to know the rules for it, so I know how fast you can get from A to B, and whether someone from B can come to A in an unexpectedly short period of time. But, you know, I don't have to, you know, write down the rules for eddy coils or anything like that. So... Uh, yeah, there's not a lot of science, even in my science fiction. There's a lot of internally consistent world building, but not a lot of science. I'm I'm really much more interested in 
stories. So even my science fiction basically has the same rules as my magical systems. They're just internally consistent, even if they're not necessarily plausible. Is that maybe partly because you get it out of your system when you're with your work for the uh, Perimeter so, Institute? <laughs> like, all right, I've done science, now fun. <laughs> maybe so, or maybe it's spite again. Maybe I'm, you know, reacting to reading uh, Silver Age science fiction like Larry Niven when I was, you know, a kid in the 80s and going, this entire bit is boring. This is like the whale blubber scene in Moby Dick. I don't care how the whale blubber works. I want back to the story. So I, I leave all the technical stuff out. Sometimes I know it. Um, sometimes it's just something that's worked out very carefully um, uh, somewhere in the background, but it hardly ever lands hardly ever lands on the page. The thing to do, I think, is to filter it through what the characters care about. You know, so the characters care about, you know, the characters care about what's happening to them, which means they don't care about how the spaceships get from place to place. Um, they care a lot more about how the demonic possession thing works because that's much closer to home. Um, but they really don't care about the, the, how the spaceships get up. So the world building, my world building tends to be a little bit, I guess, softer than that. So, yeah. I mean, I like a good hard science fiction novel, but I'm more interested in people than I am in machines. So. You keep a separate file where you write down all the rules of your universe, or yeah, how do you, I, how do, you do that? If I you around, which I can't because it's a big screen. You could see the pin board here, where I have all the rules for the thing that I'm working on uh, right now. Like you know, um, it's got maps and um, like there's a set of how you strap into this set of physical controls and what your right hand does and what your left hand does. And, you know, sketches of the creatures and, yeah, so it's, there's kind of a reference board over here <laughs> so that I can keep it all consistent. Yeah, it's, there's big files. I use Scrivener, which I think everybody should. It's great. So that lets you keep it in the same box. I have fans, or friends who use Scrivener. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, an old man and I still like my Microsoft Word. Um, what, uh... What about sell us on Scrivener? What what are the advantages that we word users are missing out on? Um, for a start, you can keep all your research in the same document as your as your um, novel. So when I was researching, um, well, the book I'm just researching, the Mongolian book, I can have all the pictures next to the scenes that I'm writing about. So if I'm writing a scene about um, how to put a hood on an eagle. I can have next to that scene a little video clip of someone putting a hood on an eagle. And it will stay there and it will be embedded there permanently. The other thing that's great about it is the search function. So I can search for, I can search the entire document for like someone's name or every time I use, you know, a particular word. Or a phrase, you know, sometimes I'm like, I really like this phrase and I should put it in the book somewhere. Have I yet? So it's it's a more powerful search function than Microsoft Word. It will give you like a list of every scene in which so-and-so's name is used. Um, and then you can just click through it. And then you can move the scenes around. That's the thing that I used to screw up in Microsoft Word. So I would color code the scenes. Um, like 
some of them would be blue and some of them would be purple and that would mean something to me. Um, but this I can actually tag metadata on top of the scene so I can go like, this is a draft and I still need to do X with it and then move it from place to place as the story shifts around. So it works for me, but I do a lot of moving. I, do, I don't write books in order. Um, so I have a scene here and a scene there, especially in the sand pile phase in the first draft. Um, and so it's really helpful to be able to keep track of things scene by scene and move things around. And that comes back to, you mentioned you, you, you don't outline mm -hmm. uh, very tightly, uh, but you do do some kind of, of plotting. At what point do you start to put those scenes in order? And what, what point are you assembling a book as opposed to just writing around a little bit of everything? Um, it's a mess at this point. It's, but it's worked five times now. So I guess I'll call it a process. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's doing all right. It's going okay. I get an idea. I get something a little bit more than a premise, a little bit less than a, you know, actual plot. Um, I call it the original equipment. So the original equipment for Plain Kate is there's an orphan girl who's a woodcarver who is forced to sell her shadow. She gets a talking cat. Not a plot and not quite a premise because there's no story there, but act one, right? And the characters and you know, what's going to happen there. And it's enough to get me to the end of act one, at which point I get super, super stuck and like stay there for a couple months and consider get a job in a bank and just <laughs> flail and bang my head against the wall. If anybody could get a job at a bank, I assume it's you. I remember <laughs> when you had my book uh, uh, in the lobby? <laughs> Where's my office? <laughs> Please hire me. Where's my office? Here's my sticker. Um, yeah, it's this is, does it come with an office, the sticker? Good to know. Yeah, then I get really stuck and I sort of feel my way forward. I generally just follow the characters around until they do something interesting that feels like the next plot piece of the book. And then I write act two. Uh, and then I get stuck again because I usually don't know the ending. Uh, often I think I know the ending, which is what gets me writing towards the ending and writing act two. But then I'm wrong, and then I get stuck again and bash my head against the wall for a while and then eventually have some kind of moment where I'm like, oh, wait, there's Act 3. And so it's in chunks. And then revision is my chance to make me look like I did it all on purpose. So in revision, I move it around, and I'm like, okay, if this is going to happen in Act 3, then I need to seed it all the way through. And, you know, this would happen in this order, and this character can go entirely. So, you know... My first draft is a mess. It's a real sand pile of thing with false leads and, um, you know, loose places. And so revision is where it all starts kind of moving around and coming together. It's not an efficient process. Um, but, you know, everybody's process is a little bit different. And I guess this is mine. So... I always joke that if I talk to two or three successful authors that all tell me we do things exactly this way, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and do what they're doing. But I haven't <laughs> had that conversation yet. <laughs> well, and people will always give you the rules for writing. Like, you know, you have to get up and you have to write every day or you have to oh, write a thousand words a day or you have to write first thing in the morning. Or It's been my experience that there is no one right process even for just for me, like my process works for a while and then it stops working and then I have to find something new. And it took me a while to stop feeling like a failure about that. 
but uh, you know what works is what works, and the rules. I don't know. It's like parenting. You've got a you've got a wee person. Like everybody has strong opinions about parenting because no one is sure they're doing it right, and they'd all really like to be certain. So I think writers can be like that. Writers. Oh no, I am. Save this podcast, esteemed audience. When my son is president. <laughs> you know that's too low a bar. When he uh, when he has cured cancer, you're welcome. Great parenting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what, two more questions and, and let's call it a day. I have talked your face off, uh, and I I know you have writing yet to do, and then you've got a you've got a school visit, you've got a full day. Um, but two questions for you, and then uh, first question uh, is why write uh, for younger readers with all the writing you could do? What is it that brings you back to young adult and middle grade, or is there some genre you're you're still anticipating doing uh, for adults? The book I'm writing right now, not the funeral home book, the other one that my agent would kill me if I told you about, that might land in an adult space. I'm not positive. It's um it's a war book, so the characters are young, but the timeline is long. So uh, I wonder. I, I'm not quite sure. It's at a certain point. Sometimes it's audience. Sometimes you write. You're like, this is middle grade. It has a middle grade voice. It has all the middle grade tropes. I want it to go to young readers. And sometimes it's like, this is a story, and some marketer should decide what shelf it goes on. Um, you know. So to a certain extent, it's you know, it's not. It's not up to me, but I am drawn continuously to young adult and middle grade books, both as a reader and as a writer. Um, I think there is something in the best of them that's really, okay. You know how they say teenagers are dramatic? I have one now, she's 14. You know how they say that teenagers are like super dramatic? And they mean it as an insult, like, tone it down, kids, right? It's really, it's prom. It's not life and death. What we forget, I think, as adults is it felt like life and death. This drama is not a false drama, right? It genuinely feels to young people like weddings and funerals every day. They were living this incredibly intense life that doesn't have, like, a layer of, you know, mortgage and dullness and <laughs> responsibility on top of it and how you just kind of learn to smooth yourself out to get along in the world. You know, my, my 14 year old is right a lot. There's no one quite as right as a 14 year old girl who's right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, there's something appealing about writing that. Um, and what I do is write in genre so that you can make it match the level of intensity. Cause like, Prom, okay, prom is not life and death. But what is Cinderella except a story about prom that's life and death? <laughs> that's true. Right? So genre is a way of fairy tales, fantasy, science fiction, even something like a murder mystery or an animal adventure. These vocabularies that we develop for young people are a way of taking a very ordinary story and just bumping it up to match that level of experience. Just, you know, like, what is Buffy? It's like, my high school is built over the mouth of hell, right? My high school was built over the mouth of hell. Her high school is literally over the mouth of hell. Mine just must have been. It would have explained so many things. Right? <laughs> you know, 
what is um, feeling like you don't belong and no one understands you? Uh, that's a changeling experience, right? It's, you know, I, I turn out to be secretly the fairy king and that's why none of this made sense. You know, or, you know, I am fundamentally special and different from everyone else. And here's my Hogwarts letter. You know, <laughs> these are not false feelings. These are real feelings and feelings that we just kind of learn to ignore as grownups because, you know, it would be a pretty miserable, unlivable world if everyone at the DMV was waiting for their Hogwarts lover letter. But, you know, I'd be so more excited all, about going there if I thought there oh, was absolutely. a possibility I'd get one. <laughs> <laughs> kind of go along to get along. The kids don't. And uh, so it's fun to write for them. It's really fun to write for them. They, they're so much more willing to, to tell a great story and to just match a level of drama and intensity. They're really interesting critical readers. Like, you know, if you try to slip something fat past them, they're going to call BS so fast. And they will tell you about it if you go to school visits. They will actually tell you to your face. You're like, grown-ups don't generally do that except on the internet. Face-to-face, -face, they, they rarely. So, you know, it's they're a fun There's audience. One star review on Amazon where the author will never see it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put Goodreads into my porn filter so that my website wouldn't go there. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a happy place for authors. Everyone can have any opinion they want about their books. I just don't need to know. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love writing for young people. I really do. I like young people. I like teenagers. I think teenagers are great. And I say this actually living with one all the time. I think teenagers are fabulous. They're so interesting. I can't wait for them to take over the world. They're going to do such a better job than my generation did running the planet into the ground. I think they're really, they got something going on. And I would write for them any day. It's an honor. I really love it when I, when I meet young people who are outraged uh, and in a way that adults aren't. And it's like, no, it's not that, uh, adults are right and you're wrong. It's just we've all made compromises on how we have to go along to get along and you're not there yet. You are having the correct response. Absolutely. <laughs> Please continue raging. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, and then final question, um, we'll, we'll call it a day because you've been extremely generous with your time and I, I really enjoyed talking with you and I want to end this while we're still having fun. Uh, okay. So my last question for you is if there was one thing you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting writing that would have made your journey uh, to this point easier, or a couple of things, what advice would you give a younger version of yourself that authors listening could apply to their own uh, careers? Well, I wish I could tell little, little bitty Aaron that books are things that humans make, not actually created by unicorns. Uh, it, you know, if I had realized that a little bit earlier, I might've gotten a few years in on the books, but then I might not have had the fun with physics. It's hard to rewrite time. But what I really wish I'd known as a young writer is there's a wonderful Ira Glass quote that you might know because it's out there a lot. It says, basically, you get into this game because you have taste. You recognize what magic looks like when you see it on the page. And, you know, that's what's driving you forward is the quest for that magic. That You have to have that. If you don't have that, you know, you really can't get very far. But... When you put your first stuff on the page, it's not going to have that spark and you're going to feel like a talentless hack. 
when you put your first stuff down as a beginner, it's it's it'll it'll twinkle here and there, and that's great, but it's not going to live up to your expectations, and that's more an indication of your taste and your ability to perceive magic than it is of your talent. You know, it's not that you can't do it; it's that you haven't quite learned to do it yet. You know, and the other thing to know is. When you're seeing it on someone's page and it's a published book, you know, that's like draft eight. And it's been through the hands of probably two or three rounds of really smart readers and editors and proofreaders and copy editors. And a lot of people have made that book look as beautiful as it does. And the fact that your first draft doesn't is really not a condemnation. So I wish I had more fully understood that. And I hope that young people who are just starting out will give themselves a little time to play and just enjoy the twinkly parts. You know, I, I know they want it to blaze. I, we all want it to be brilliant all the time. Um, and it never is. And it's kind of disappointing. And I wish that young writers understood that, that everybody is kind of going, well, that bit is good, but the rest of it, oh, maybe we should just, I should just, you know, put it in a drawer and stop. Um, everybody wanders and everybody struggles. And if you get, if you keep going, you might not get where you in, wanted to end up, but you probably will end up somewhere interesting. So I wish I had known that earlier and I hope some young writer out there can know it now. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Aaron, it's been an absolute pleasure. Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, get signed up to follow you, and all that good stuff? I have a website at uh, aaronbow.com, so E-R-I-N-B-O-W. Easy name, traded it in for an easy one. And then I'm all over social media as Aaron Bow Books. So they can follow you on the, the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook, all that stuff? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. Got it all. There you go. Uh, and as always, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. You know who I am. Download the free books I told you about earlier, Banneker Bones, The Giant Robot Beans, The Book of David. Have a great time. Uh, come back uh, next Saturday. We'll be chatting with, I don't know, check the website. Somebody amazing. It'll be an incredible episode. Uh, Aaron, I always ask our guests to sign us off with the totally justifies the name of the show because it's such a ninja-like sign-off phrase. Uh, mm -hmm. and that sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hiya and what have you.